Psalms chapter 4. Choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Selah. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Selah. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we have on this Lord's Day to gather together as the people of God, to worship you in song, to worship you through studying your word, considering the things that you have written to us and revealed to us in your word. Father, we would pray that this morning you would minister to each one of us. Lord, that you would cause us to be a people who are eagerly and attentively listening to your voice in the pages of Scripture. Father, we pray that we would encourage one another as a church body this morning. Lord, that as the service ends today and we fellowship with each other, that we would encourage and bless and minister to one another. Lord, we pray this morning for those members of this church who cannot be here physically with us. Lord, we pray that you would bless them, that you would remind them not only of your great love this morning, but our love for them. Continue to sustain them with good health and continue to sustain their faith. But Lord, as we are turning our attention to Psalm 4, we again invite you to speak to us as your people, as your children, and continue to lead us in the way that we ought to go. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, go ahead and grab a seat. And good morning to everyone. Psalm chapter 4. Now this is a bold psalm. Um, in reading it, it, it's almost feels, it almost feels, I should say, a bit demanding when you read this psalm. You've got David here crying out and saying, answer me when I call, O God, right out of the gates. This is the kind of prayer that comes from a place of real need. When was the last time that you prayed a prayer of desperation like this? A prayer that says to the Lord, God, I need you to show up right now. I'm falling apart here. I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to be okay if you don't answer me, Lord, and help me and come to my aid. Now, we know that David is not being demanding here in Psalm 4. I mean, you'll notice at the end of verse 1, he says, Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. In other words, David understands that God does not owe him a response. David understands that if God answers his prayer, it will be a complete act of undeserved grace. And so David is not being demanding, 
Um, David is just in distress, and so David is crying out to the Lord with everything in him. It's a, a sense of urgency that is leading him into this prayer. He cries out to the Lord. Now, like Psalm 3, this psalm before us today is another psalm of lament. And by lament, we mean a psalm where the psalmist is complaining and the psalmist is crying out to the Lord to deliver him from the thing that he is complaining about. Now, what's interesting is book one of the Psalter, which is what we are studying together as a church family, book, or I'm sorry, Psalm 1 through Psalm 41, is actually a book that is less about praise and more about lament. Many of the Psalms in book one are, again, these Psalms of lament, these Psalms of crying out in a place of distress. Psalms 3 through 7, 9 through 13, 16 and 17, 22, 25 through 28, 31, and then 35 through 41 are all Psalms of lament. And so as we begin to study book one of the Psalter and we keep encountering these different Psalms of lament, some of it might feel a little repetitive. For sure the mood's going to feel repetitive. Again, somebody in distress crying out for help. But Ryan, I think, astutely pointed out when we were talking about this last week that this just seems so timely of the Lord because aren't we collectively as a society in a sustained season of lament? When you look at the events that have transpired in 2020, a global pandemic, uh, racial injustice, the issues that surrounded the inauguration and the election of a new president, I mean, all of this has shocked our nation and has caused us to be in a place of lament, a place of distress as a people, and so how providential of our Lord to lead us now in 2021 into a season of studying lament, learning how to handle distress and anxiety, and how to bring these things before the Lord in a way that honors God. And so this morning... Again, we're faced with another psalm of lament. Now, before we unpack the actual prayer, I want to draw your attention to the superscription, uh, sort of the title right there at the beginning. It says, To the choir master with stringed instruments. Now, what that means is that at some point, this prayer of David was incorporated into the formal worship of God's people. What this means is that this former prayer of David became a congregational song. As God's people gathered together, as we have done this morning, this would have been set to music, and the, the, the family of God would have actually sung this particular psalm. Uh, we know that not just because of the superscription, but also because of the two references to the word selah. Selah, this is a musical term of unknown meaning. Scholars are uncertain exactly what that word means. But one of two ideas is likely right. Either the word selah means a pause in the music, or it means a ramping up of the music or the voices. So kind of adding uh, emphasis to a part of a song. But either way, the point is sort of the same, whether it means to pause and consider what just happened, what you just read, 
or if it's a let's add emphasis by raising our voices and playing the instruments louder. Again, the point is an intensifying focus on what the psalmist just said. And so as you're reading the psalms, anytime you come across that word in the psalm, it's a great practice to just pause and maybe reread and reconsider what did I just read? Because the author of the psalm felt that that particular part of it was extremely is that this psalm is written in the first person and was sung as a corporate worship song. Sometimes when people talk in church circles about what sorts of songs should we be singing together, people say we shouldn't sing songs that are focused on I or me. We should only sing songs that are collective, that are we and us. But this psalm reminds us that there is an appropriate place for personal worship songs in corporate worship settings. Songs where we are actually calling out to the Lord in the first person. And it's I and it's me, not only us and we. Well, let's turn now to the specifics of the prayer of Psalm chapter 4. As we already talked about, this is a prayer coming from a place of distress. And so the question is, why then is David, the author, in distress? Well, verse 2 gives us the answer. David says, O men, how long shall my, be, my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? David here, at this point in his life, like many other points in his life, was being slandered. He was being lied about. David's reputation is being destroyed by the powerful people in the community. We know that because the Hebrew word that uh, is translated omen is not the word that you would use to just refer to people in general. It's a word that referred to those who were wealthy or powerful or leaders in the community. You could say it was the big shots there in Israel. And it's one thing, of course, if the common people are slandering the king or are upset with the king, but it's quite another thing if the prominent and powerful people in Israel are frustrated with King David, thus the distress that he must be feeling at this point in his life. What is it that these powerful people are saying? What is the lie? What is the slander that they're coming at David with? Well, we don't really know for sure, but verses 6 and 7 might give us a clue. Good. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. So it could be that the land is not producing a plentiful harvest of grain and of wine. And so the people are laying the blame for that on their leader, King David. And of course... If the land is not producing a great harvest, King David, as a godly leader, was encouraging the people, look, trust in the Lord. God will step in. God will provide for us. God will bless us. And yet, it's not happening. And so the people are possibly complaining and murmuring against David because of this. And obviously, that murmuring and complaining is ultimately toward the Lord. In fact, Look at how the New International Version translates the end of verse 2. It translates it this way, How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? And so again, it could be that key leaders in Israel were slandering King David. 
And they were slandering God. And they were suggesting that they should look for help and they should look for their prosperity elsewhere. These other powerful people in Israel are maybe saying, you know what, forget what David's saying. Yahweh, the Lord, is not delivering us. Maybe the Canaanite gods will take care of us. Maybe we should go after some other gods and start praying and sacrificing to them and see if that works because what we're doing here by being faithful to the Lord is not delivering what we need. At any rate, we know that David here in Psalm 4 is being wrongly accused and he's being unfairly attacked. We also know that it's been going on for some time. His, his complaint, he says, how long? How long are you men going to continue to do this? This is an ongoing assault that has been going on toward David. One could overlook a single lie, an insult, a slander from another person, but an ongoing onslaught of character assassination, an ongoing smear campaign against you, that's distressing. That can become overwhelming, especially when it's coming from people that are powerful and wealthy and in leadership positions. When they're out trying to ruin you and undo your reputation, when they're trying to turn other people against you, it's a challenge. This sort of thing pushes the godly into prayer to seek divine aid. And thus, David's response in all of this trial is to go to the Lord in prayer. When people turn against us, where do we go? I titled this morning's sermon, To Whom Shall I Turn? It's definitely one of the key questions here in Psalm 4. To whom shall I turn? Where, where do we go in times of crisis? Where do we go specifically this week when people turn against us? When that colleague at work begins to spread rumors or directly lie about you to put you in a bad light and maybe get themselves ahead, to whom do you turn? Often our first response is to return fire, right? They start lobbing these bombs at you and assaulting you and we pick up our weapons and we return fire at them and we start lashing out and trying to get back at them. And so all of a sudden you've, you've caught wind of what she's saying about you in the office place and you say, well, that's not true. And actually she's the one who, and, and you go off and you just start returning fire, you say, look, everybody knows she's power hungry. She's just out to try to ruin my reputation and get ahead in the company. Or if we don't directly return fire, sometimes our first response is to go on the defensive. To sort of do damage control. And so our first response is to turn to our friends for aid. We go walking around the office and we go to the colleagues who we think are in our corner and we say, hey, listen, you, you know that stuff's not true. And if push comes to shove, I can count on you, right? You're going to go to bat for me, right? You're going to help vindicate me, right? You're going to get my back, won't you? We try to build our coalition and go on the defensive. Well, David decides that here's what he's going to do. He's going to go to the Lord. And he's going to go to God in prayer. He calls on the God of my righteousness in verse 1, meaning the God who knows that he's in the right in this situation. David could go before the Lord, and even though all these other people are making up lies about him and slandering him, he goes to God and he says, but you know the truth. God, God you know that I'm innocent in this, that I'm in the right in this situation, and so I'm going to complain to you because you know the truth right now. 
And so he complains before the Lord. Why does David turn to God for help? The simple answer is this, because God has helped him before. You see that right there in the middle of verse 1. In the middle of verse 1, David recalls how God has given him relief in the past during times of distress. He says, you've given me relief when I was in distress. Other translations say, you gave me room. The idea there is that the Lord has gotten David out of a tight spot before. David goes before the Lord in prayer and he's like, Lord, remember when I was in a jam before, you were the one who got me out. You delivered me. You rescued me in the past. And so David has this confidence that the Lord can get him out of another tight spot in this moment in his life. After rhetorically asking his accusers how long they would continue attacking him in verse 2, the psalm shifts gears in verse 3 as David now begins to offer counsel to those who are attacking him. And this counsel comes in the form of commands. There's five of them, five commands or imperatives, and they're each very significant. The first command that David gives to these liars, these slanderers, is to know. We see that in verse 3. To know what? To know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. This is the first thing that David thinks these prominent, powerful people who are attacking him should know. You need to know that the Lord sets apart the godly for himself. And therefore, David says, he hears my prayers. David's essentially saying, look, God chose me and God hears me and therefore your attacks against me are actually in vain. You can't harm me because God is with me. God has chosen me. And family, this great truth should comfort us to no end. The doctrine of election tells us that God chose us before we ever chose Him. God chose us. And if that's true, that God actually chose us to belong to Him, then it logically follows that God will hear us when we pray to Him. And it logically follows that God will never abandon us. God will never let us be completely overcome or undone by our enemies. He will hear us when we cry out to Him. Luke 18.7 puts it this way, Will not God give justice to His elect who cry to Him day and night? It's a rhetorical question. Of course God will give justice to those whom He has chosen as we cry out to Him day and and night. And so David begins by saying to his accusers, listen, you need to know something. God has chosen me, and God hears me. And so again, your attacks against me are ultimately going to come to nothing. He moves on, though, and he has another command for them. His counsel now moves in this direction. He says, not only do you need to know something, he says, you need to tremble. Now, you're going to notice that this council's all going to build on top of itself. It's like blocks, one on top of the other. So first, it's know the way that God is working. Number two now, it's tremble in verse four. He says, tremble and do not sin. Or in the ESV, which we're reading, it says, be angry 
and do not sin. Now this is tough to If tremble is the idea here, then, then what David is saying is he's saying, listen, here's what you guys should do. You should fear God and sin not. You should fear God and sin not. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher of England in the last century, said, how many reverse this counsel and sin, but tremble not. David's saying, don't be foolish like that. Tremble, fear the Lord, and sin not. Now, if be angry is the right way to understand this, then probably what David would be saying is, listen, powerful people, it's okay to be upset or it's okay to be angry, so to speak, about our circumstances. That we don't have crops overflowing in abundance right now. It's okay to be upset about that, but don't allow your, your being upset to lead you into sin. Namely, slandering me and considering idolatry and abandoning the Lord. But either way, he says here, tremble and sin not. The third command is also in verse 4, and it's so important. He now tells these people, he says, ponder. Ponder. Reflect. Consider. Ponder what? Themselves. Rather than lashing out against me, David's saying with your tongues, why don't you keep silent and actually examine yourselves? Examine your own heart. Examine your motives. Examine what you're doing in your life. Examine what you're thinking about doing against me. Now notice the Selah right here. Both of the Selahs in this psalm are actually in relation to the wicked people. The first one there in verse 2 was asking us as readers to pause and ponder the way of the wicked and ponder how devoted they are to evil things as they have this prolonged attack of lying and slandering against David David says Selah just stop and think about the gravity of what they're doing stop and think about the sinfulness of the human condition this second Selah here in verse 4 is challenging us now to pause and ponder the importance of quieting their mouths and examining their own hearts, checking themselves. How much sin could be restrained in the world if human beings would put into practice this idea here? That rather than just lashing out with everything that occurs to us, just saying, saying, doing whatever we want to do in the moment, if human beings would stop, silence themselves, and ponder what's really going on inside of us. Ponder the words that we're using. Ponder the behaviors that we're giving ourselves over to. So David's counsel to these evil people is ponder, examine, be circumspect, reflect on where you're at. I think this is a good reminder to us as Christians of the importance of confession, which is a spiritual discipline that I think has fallen on hard times in our day and age. But historically, Christians, and generally in the evening, as they lie on their bed, like verse 4 talks about, Christians have been a people who practice confession, which is a spiritual practice of considering and examining our life, examining the last 24 hours. 
and trying to really understand what's going on or word or deed. Acknowledging that for what it is. That's what confessing means. It's agreeing with the Lord that these things that are wrong in our life are in fact wrong. And we confess them and we forsake them and we experience God's mercy. So David is saying here, ponder. Ponder, consider what's going on. The fourth command in verse 5 now is offer. After they've gotten a handle on what's really going on inside, that they're sinning, they're attacking God's chosen vessel, David. Now David says, offer right sacrifices. Don't abandon the Lord. Don't abandon Yahweh and go look to some false god. No, 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 no. David says, listen, here's what you need to do. Offer right sacrifices to the Lord. Worship the Lord. Give to the Lord what he requires. Now, during this time in the Old Testament, of course, when people offered sacrifices, they offered animal sacrifices to atone for their sins. And there were certain sacrifices that were prescribed for certain sins. And David is saying, you need to offer to God the proper sacrifices. You need to get back on track with the Lord. Now, of course, we know that 2,000 years ago, Jesus, God's one and only Son, came to this earth as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And when Jesus lived a righteous life 2,000 years ago, never once disobeying the commands of God, his righteousness becomes available to all of us who put our faith in him. And when Jesus went to the cross 2,000 years ago and he died there, Jesus was not dying because of his own sin. He had none to die for. Jesus was dying on that cross there to actually experience the wrath and the judgment of his Father for sins that you and I committed. So that for those of us who put our faith in Jesus, we never, ever have to sacrifice for our own sins. We never, ever have to experience judgment for our own sins. And so for us, on this side of the cross, as we read a verse like verse 5, and we think about offering right sacrifices, God is not asking anyone in the world right now to offer some sacrifice to atone for their sins. What God is saying to us now on this side of the cross is to receive the sacrifice of Christ that atones for our sins. And that's what it looks like to offer right sacrifices to the Lord. The fifth command in verse 5 and the final one now is trust. He says to them, he says, listen, after they offer these right sacrifices, he says, and put your trust in the Lord. And this is so important because what David has in mind here is not just going through the motions types of sacrifices in verse 5. Not just the going through the motions, checking off the box kind of worship in the temple where you go, okay, fine. What does God want for me? Oh, he wants a, a bull to be sacrificed? Fine, he can have it. I'll give it to him. That's not what God's interested in. God has always been interested in a type of life that lives for the Lord and obeys the Lord because we have received 
the love of God and because we trust in the Lord and we have faith in the Lord. So our obedience always flows out of our faith. And so David is saying, offer to the Lord the right sacrifices, but put your trust fully in the Lord. This is what the Lord wants. Worship that flows from a sincere faith. Paul says this to Christians in Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So Paul is saying, listen, based on God's mercy toward us in Christ, now we should, in fact, offer God a sacrifice, namely the sacrifice of our own lives. We should say, Lord, I'm surrendered to you. Lord, I'm going to live for you. But we're not doing that so we can check some box or we're not doing that going, oh, this is what God wants from me so I can earn my place in heaven. No, this is the response, the heartfelt response of somebody who's really, truly grasped God's mercy through Christ. Now, I want to get to the last couple of verses here and close, but can we just stop and take note of the godliness of David's heart here? I mean, again, get back into the context here. His enemies are out to ruin his life. They are attacking him and trying to destroy his reputation. They're causing him great distress. And what is David's response to all of this? He goes to the Lord in prayer and he earnestly wants them to come to the Lord. I mean, those five commands are really like a five-step process to getting right with the Lord. And this is David's heart in this prayer is the counsel that he wants to give them is counsel that's actually going to bring them to the Lord so that they can be right with the Lord. So often, we're just interested in justice. When somebody does us wrong, we just want justice. We just want them to suffer the consequences for what they've done wrong. So if she's attacking me at work and it's unjust and she's trying to destroy my reputation, my heart is, well, Lord, get her fired. Move her on. Get her out of this company. If she's going to sow the wind, let her reap the whirlwind, Lord. That's what I want to see. If this guy is trying to turn everybody in my school against me and he's a bully in the school, well, Lord, turn everybody against him. Let's get even, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Justice, Lord, we're about justice. And I love David's heart here. Because even though he's in the right, and these people are in the wrong, and even though they are seeking his destruction, his heart is, Lord, let me pray for my enemies. And not pray for justice. Let me pray in this instance for salvation. That they would get saved. And when you think about that, I mean, doesn't that solve a lot of the problems we're having with people anyway? I mean, imagine if that enemy of yours, so to speak, gets saved. And their heart gets radically transformed by the gospel. That's going to totally transform your relationship with them anyways. And make things better. But David wants to see their eyes opened and them drawn to the Lord. Jesus teaches us in Matthew 5. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Could anything be more Christ-like? 
Well, this mental exercise of rebuking and correcting his opponents leads David now to reflect on one of the main things that are being said by David's attackers. In verse 6, who will show us some good? Or as the New International Version puts it, who will bring us prosperity? Right? They're looking and they're saying, David's not doing it. So our, our king's failing us. They're looking and they're saying, the Lord's not doing it. He's not bringing us prosperity. He's not delivering any good to us. But for David, God could and God would. And so he recalls and repeats in shorthand the priestly blessing that's recorded in number six that he has heard hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times throughout his life. And he says, Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Here's the longer form of it in number six, 24 through 26. The priests were to bless the people like this. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And so David here quotes one aspect of that. And essentially he's saying this, he's saying, smile on us, Lord. Lift up the light of your countenance. Smile on us, Lord. Show us your favor and your love and your presence one more time. Now there's two ways to take verse 7. The New International Version translates it this way. I'll put it on the screen. Fill my heart with joy when their grain and new wine abound. In other words, the prayer of verse 6 would be essentially saying, Lord, show them that you are in fact the one who will show us good. That you are in fact the one who will bless us with a great harvest. And this, of course, would fill David with joy because it would vindicate David. And it would be another reminder of God's love and care for him. The other way to take this is how the ESV does in our Bibles in front of us this morning, it says, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In other words, what David would be saying is, Lord, in the prayer in verse 6, Lord, grant us your presence. Give us more of you, right? Light up, or light up the light of your face upon us. So give us more of you and your presence. Why? Verse 7, because your presence brings more joy than an abundant harvest ever could. So David would then again be praying, Lord, make yourself known to me. Make yourself known to these wicked attackers against me because you know what? That's where true joy is found anyway. They're looking for it in wine and grain and material wealth. That's, that's a dead end road. Lord, give us you. Give us your presence. Shine your face upon us because that is what ultimately fills up our hearts with joy. So there you have it. David has prayed his way through this distressing time. And now he is ready to end this prayer with a resounding and confident trust. He says in verse 8, In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. David's saying, listen, even though the outcome isn't secure yet, I can lay down, I can both lay down and sleep. The idea of laying down means I can 
stop trying to fix it myself. I can just kind of wash my hands of it. I can lay down and I can sleep. I can rest because he has peace. Why? The answer is clear. It's because his future and his safety are in the hands of the Lord. He knows that God has got him. That God is going to take care of him. Pastor Matt Chandler, who's a really solid pastor in Texas, was battling a brain tumor a number of years ago. And he was posting video updates to his congregation of his treatment and his progress. And I remember I was watching one of them and he was talking about the peace that he was experiencing in the middle of this, this treatment. And he said that God's sovereignty or, or God's control over his life was like a warm blanket that covered him. And I just thought, what a beautiful picture. This idea that in the midst of, and he was in his 30s at the time, a young, young man with a successful ministry and a beautiful young family, and he has this diagnosis that he might not survive, and he's able to look and say, but I can sleep comfortably, and I can rest because God is sovereign. God is in control of my future, and whether I live 10 months or 50 more years, God knows, and God will take care of me. It's a very biblical perspective. That's the perspective that David has here in Psalm chapter 4, that he could be at rest and at peace because God would take care of him. Do you struggle to sleep at night? Are you a person who's consumed with anxiety, consumed with worry? If you're a Christian, I'd encourage you to meditate on verse 8 here. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. This psalm, because of verse 8, has been used by worshipers for centuries as an evening prayer. And it's so appropriate as that. As a, a model prayer for our final prayer of the day as we lay down at night. There are days in all of our lives which require a prayer like this at the end. Like this psalm, Our days can begin with the opinions of others looming large over us and creating a lot of distress and a lot of anxiety. Maybe it's the expectation of your spouse, the expectations of your children, the expectations of your employer, your colleagues, your friends. These things can be crushing in our lives, especially when people are being critical of us. And it can be distressing. But as we turn our minds and our hearts to God in prayer, especially a prayer like this, we can be at peace as we end our day, as we're reminded that it is the opinion of God that matters the most. As we're reminded that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself and therefore he does hear our prayers. True joy and true peace are for those who have God's smile. And so family, today, regardless of your circumstances, if you belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ, may his joy and his peace go with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift that these psalms of lament are to your people. Because 
life is not just happy. Life is not all hymns of praise and shouts of joy. Life is challenging. Life includes suffering. Life includes sin, both our own sin and also the sins of other people against us. And yet here in the Psalter, we are given language to express these sorts of experiences. Language to express our emotions in times of distress. Lord, we thank you for this prayer of David, this example of godliness, this reminder that it is to you that we should flee when others turn against us. This reminder that you listen to the godly, that you have set the godly apart for yourself. And Lord, we thank you for this reminder to any who would doubt whether or not they should put their trust in you, for any who are perhaps looking to other gods or so-called gods to deliver them, or who are actively participating in sin. Lord, we thank you for this reminder to ponder what they're doing, to fear God, to offer right sacrifices to you and to put their trust in you and find forgiveness and deliverance. And so, Lord, I pray for all of us this morning that we would do that, that we would put our trust wholly in you today, Lord. And as we do, we pray that your presence would go with us, your smile would be upon us, and that our hearts this day would be filled, even overflowing with joy and with peace because we belong to you. We ask this now in Christ's name. Amen.